Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, good morning. How are you? What a day already. Let's go. First Timothy chapter 4 is where we find ourselves as we're working our way through this Really beautiful and powerful and applicable letter from Paul to the church to a young pastor named Timothy. And we find ourselves in the first portion of chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use one of the Bibles that you can find in the chair rack in front of you. And if you're not used to looking up passages in the Bible, you can find 1 Timothy 4 verses 1 through 5 on either page 780 or 992 of the Bibles that you'll find. Same version of the Bible, just different copies. That's why the page numbers are different. And as we say virtually every Sunday, if you don't have a copy of God's Word as your own, you're welcome to take that Bible and keep it as your own and our gift to you. And we'd love for you to read it. And we uh, pray that you'd come back and be part of this church. Or if this isn't the best place for you, then, then some other Bible-believing church in our area. There, there are many good churches in our city, and we're thankful that we're just a small part of the body of Christ here in Columbus. And what a privilege to be part of the work of the gospel, not just amongst our neighbors, but the nations. Like even today, we have a couple from Cross Point going to give their lives away to Kosovo, and then several people going to China. Praise God for what he's doing in just a little church in west central Georgia that wants to take seriously the claims of the complete sovereignty of God over everything and the goodness of his son and his work on the cross. And, I mean, praise God. Praise God for that. You hang around long enough, maybe you will get infected with that bug as well. And um, you will give your life away, Lord willing, to uh, either our neighbors here or the nations. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 4. This morning, as is our custom, on the first Sunday of every month, we're going to receive communion together. And so if you are a believer in Jesus, if you're trusting in Christ, you are welcome to come to this table with us in, in a moment after we get done working through this short passage where we celebrate the most important news in the world. It's the reason why the cars are going to Kosovo and some people are getting on a plane later in the week to go to China to encourage our missionaries there to help them tell people about Jesus. It's the reason why we gather here this morning and and want to be very clear about the gospel. And it is this great news that we will celebrate when we come to the table that Jesus, the Son of God, God himself in the flesh, lived a perfect life laid down his perfect human life as a sacrifice on the cross, bore the wrath of God the Father for all of those that would turn and trust in him and believe in Jesus and removed it and then not only took away their sin, but gave them his righteousness, filled them with his Holy Spirit so that they can spend the rest of their days on this earth, in this life, until God takes them home, making much of him. That's what we do when we come to this table. It's not just a a tradition or a ritual that Christians do. We come to remember that God the Son laid his life down on the cross, bore the wrath of God the Father, rose again from the grave, and has defeated every foe. And if you are a believer in Jesus, there's nothing more important for you to remember. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, there's nothing more important for you to know and to consider and to wrestle with. And we pray that you might even trust in that very good news. 
All right, well, let me do this. Let me pray, and then we're going to read through 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. And this short text, I pray, will help us be a church that is more equipped to live a discerning, Christ-centered, gospel-motivated life. Because remember, the whole point of 1 Timothy, I think, is that Paul is writing this letter to this young pastor, giving him instruction on how the church should do life together, not merely so that they can function better as a, as a group of people, as a family of God in Ephesus, which is where this church is, is located, but so that through their life together, they collectively might be a clearer display of the gospel, of the good news, to an onlooking world. So the whole point of our gathering here is not merely for ourselves or for our own benefit or for our comfort or even for our own spiritual edification, although that's part of it, but so that through us, just like this church in Ephesus thousands of years ago, God might put on display the surpassing worth of Christ. And this text, Paul is wrestling with an issue that is hindering the church, and he wants them to be discerning and wise and help them help them work through this so that they can be a better display of the beauty of Christ. So let me pray, and then we'll read. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for just the beautiful things that you have done in this church, are doing with this little group of people. Thank you, Lord, for the cars, and I pray that you would go before them and encourage them. Thank you for the call of God on their lives. As they depart, I'm sure with anxiety, sturdy them, stabilize them, put, put steel in their spine for the sake of the gospel amongst the people of Kosovo. Lord, do the same, we pray, for our short-term trip to China, and do the same even for us. Make us more wise, more Christ-like as a result of our time together this morning. Produce in us more compassion for a world around us. And for those of us who are in this room, as, as J.D. prayed so well this morning in our call to worship, for those who are not yet trusting in Christ, may you, Lord, by your sovereign grace, open the eyes of their hearts so that they can behold the beauty of Jesus. Help us as we work through this text in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer." Okay, so this little paragraph here comes on the heels of Paul in chapter 3, giving uh, a description of the qualifications for church leaders, particularly elders and then deacons. And then remember at the end of chapter 3, he breaks into this kind of hymn, this liturgical anthem 
about the church and about the work of Christ. And he says that the church is to be the place where the living God dwells and it's the household of God and it's the pillar and buttress of the truth. And then he breaks into this, really this probably, this New Testament early church song about Jesus, about how he was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit, meaning that Jesus lived and died and rose again and he appeared and now he's ascended and reigns over all things. And now in chapter 4, Paul is turning his attention back to something that he tipped us to in the first chapter where he says that he wants Timothy to guard the good doctrine of the gospel in the church because there was error being taught. or There were false teachings spreading throughout the church, really all across the New Testament church that continually needed to be guarded against and battled and fought against. But in particular in Ephesus, there was apparently false teachers, Paul calls them insincere liars, uh, whose consciences were seared. And so here is this first thing that I want you to say. I want you to see the problem that Paul is fighting against here in this church in Ephesus. And the problem is these false teachers. Now notice what Paul says about these false teachers. He calls them insincere liars whose consciences are seared. Maybe if you're reading from a NIV or a New American Standard version of the Bible, it says, it adds on this little phrase that their consciences are seared or branded as like by a hot iron. Think about, I mean, some of you I'm sure have maybe pressed the iron a little bit, at least I have anyway, and I think it was some silk garment that I shouldn't have ironed that was for Jennifer, and you burn, once you burn something, it's just, it's kind of well, it's burned, it's, it's ruined, as they say here in the South, it's, it's done with. And Paul is saying that these particular, this group of people who's teaching, this false teaching, which we're going to uncover what that is in a moment, their consciences are seared. It's an interesting phrase. It, it tips us off to this possibility that the human soul can give in to false teaching or rebellion against God or sin or deceitful spirits, the teaching of demons to the point where their soul, literally their ability to just engage things mentally is damaged. And I think just looking at sometimes my own life and past sin and lives of people that I, that I shepherd and care for, I see sometimes a sort of searing of the soul that the world and the life and our own sin will will put on us. But the beautiful truth of the gospel is is that God can unsear a human soul. He can can repair a damaged conscience. But that's the point of what's going on here is that these teachers are, are seared. Now, I just want us to observe as we look at this problem before we kind of unpack what maybe they were teaching. Observe and notice the stark realities and the contrasts that Paul sees the world in. This false teaching is so serious that Paul doesn't just sort of say, ah, well, you know, that's kind of an unfortunate version. That's a bad teaching. He says that it is the teachings of demons and it comes from deceitful spirits. Now, I think we tend to view and read the Bible sometimes subconsciously with a kind of overly civilized 
21st century lens. Like, ah, well, those problems, this is a sort of old, historic, like, you know, uh, more primitive culture. And they were sort of open to these sort of paganistic, animistic religions. And really, we don't have to worry about these things anymore because we're more sophisticated. Friends, I think nothing could be further from the truth. I think Paul was a man that was so uh, just absorbed with the truth and the reality of what it meant to be in Christ and out of Christ that any teaching that potentially drew people away from Christ wasn't just some sort of thing that needed to be, you know, kind of gently handled. He saw it as a teaching of demonic influence. I think, just think about how stark Paul saw life. Think about this reality of the spiritual battle that is raging for the souls of the Ephesians, and I think rages even today for our souls. It reminds me of the Apostle Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, and it applied then and it applies now. He says to his listeners and to us today, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And that was Paul's frame of reference. That's how he saw the world, and quite frankly, that's how we should see the world. And that doesn't mean that we... Look behind every rock for a demon. But I do think it means that, that any teaching that's going to drag people away from trusting in the true gospel is not just sort of not good. It comes from demonic influences. It's deceitful. It's a lie. And it must be, it must be adamantly opposed. So what was this error that Paul is so concerned about? Well, in verse 3... He says that these false, insincere, lying teachers were saying that the Christians in Ephesus should not evidently be married and that they should abstain from certain foods. So we don't know much about the specifics of what they were teaching because it's not recorded, but I think we can surmise from from other knowledge that we have about Greek culture at the time is that this was likely a false teaching that sprung from a Greek view of the world, a Greek mystic view of the world that taught that there was an ultra separation between physical things and spiritual things. It was a kind of I'm going to teach you a a 50-cent word here that you can use on your friends Monday and impress them. It was a kind of asceticism. And asceticism means a sort of denying of any worldly pleasure for the sake of some higher spirituality. Okay, that's what I think is likely going on here. They are in this Greek philosophical mindset saying that anything that you do with your body, any pleasure is inherently bad. And so the pleasure that you might get from marriage or the pleasure that you might get from interacting with, you know, a steak or some good food. (sighs) I'm getting hungry. What are we having for lunch, by the way, babe? That that is inherently bad. And Paul is combating this. And why is this such an error? Because what it is, what it becomes, as it sort of spells it, the consequences of it, is it is a kind of veiled legalism. What do I mean by that? 
what was likely being attached to these extra commandments, whether it's don't marry. And by the way, that's teaching just when you sort of think about it. If everybody didn't get married, then eventually, pretty soon, the human race would be extinct. So it just kind of falls apart, but I guess... Whatever. But don't get married and don't eat. And what it is is it's if you want to truly be spiritual, if you want to truly be right with God, you've got to do this or don't do that. And I think that's where Paul saw the great challenge to the gospel and he attacked it with full force because what was happening is it wasn't just causing people to be confused but it was causing some people as we see in verse 1 to depart from the faith they were starting to trust in something other than the finished work of Christ for their right standing with God and friends that's where it all hinges Anytime we add something to the gospel, we lose the gospel. Jesus plus anything else, whether it's something first century and sort of foreign to us, like not being married or not eating a particular food, whatever it may be, when we add it to the gospel, no matter how spiritual and well-meaning it sounds, we lose the gospel. And it will cause some people to depart from the faith because ultimately they are deceived into thinking that right standing with a holy God comes about through something that we can do rather than something that Christ has done for us. And so I think that's the problem that Paul is so adamant about, that he sees not just as a kind of minor problem to be dealt with here. Oh, this is just some bad teachings. Don't buy those books that are written by these authors from Lifeway. No, no, just just stay away from those and buy those. No, he pitches a fit and says that what's at stake here is souls. And so then what is his response? So that's the problem. What is Paul's response? And we see it, I think, in verses 4 and 5. He says that everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So Paul's response to this legalistic view of created things is to say, no, God made creation good. Now, although creation is fallen because of Adam and Eve's rebellion and then our rebellion along with them, creation was created good by God. And Paul is saying that created things are not evil in and of themselves. Rather, the heart of man is fallen, and we, by our sin, pervert the created order. Now, in just a little bit, we're going to apply these truths and look a little bit more at some case-by-case situations about how we need to think about various things in the created order. But Paul is saying here, he's, he's redeeming creation, and he's saying, listen, the problem isn't out here whether it's marriage or food or whatever it is, the problem is in here. And God created everything good, but our hearts have turned against him. And even though he has made us new by the work of his son, we need to wisely engage the world around us because things in and of themselves are not inherently evil, but our interaction with them can often be tainted by sin and a kind of veiled legalism. So I think that's the just very simply the situation a false teaching and Paul's response so now three truths how do we apply 
this truth because we may be thinking, Brad, I mean, I, you know, I've heard some bad teaching, but I don't hear anybody necessarily forbidding marriage and, you know, Carabas. Well, I, actually, I would say Cafe Amici is a better option than Carabas, but, you know, whatever. You, I, but I'm just half Italian. You guys pick out your own favorite Italian restaurants. Do, do what you will. You may say, well, Brad, that's not a problem for us today. Veiled legalism is not a problem for us today. Well, let's, let's do a little work with that. So three truths that I think we need to glean from this, this short, powerful passage. First, by way of reminding, hopefully, let's remember that faith in Christ alone is what makes us right with God. Not faith plus anything else. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And friends, in this little short passage is the gospel itself. He says, therefore, we have been justified by faith. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So Paul is saying here in Romans 5 that the way that we are made right, the way that we are justified, the way that we are in right standing with the holy God of the universe is through faith. But lest we think that even our faith is something that we contribute, let's remember what sin in the first place has done to us. Sin has not just neutralized us or incapacitated us. The Bible's very clear that sin, our rebellion against God, has separated us from God. The Bible calls it spiritual death. Ephesians 2, he says that we are dead in our sins. And then later on in that same passage, it says that we are by nature objects of wrath. So we are dead. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? It means that you are completely unable to do anything that would commend you to God or make you right with a holy God. And then in that same passage in Ephesians 2, he says that when God moves on a soul to save it, he says, but God makes us alive. It's also in Colossians 2 from the verse that uh, Will read earlier for us that God makes us alive. And so when God saves a person, he doesn't look across a bunch of dead people and say, which dead person seems like they have faith or something to commend them to me? No, dead people don't have anything that they can bring to the table because dead people are dead In fact, one of my favorite stories in the Bible that I think illustrates salvation so clearly is John chapter 11, and it's the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And the Bible in the King James Version, which I know some of you love, which I love as well, wants to emphasize the fact that Lazarus is dead. And so it says that he, say it with me, he stinketh. If you stank, that means you're dead. You're decomposing is what's going on there. And what happens to Lazarus? Jesus speaks to him and Lazarus comes back to life. And now because God has made Lazarus alive, Lazarus now has the ability to have faith. So it's nothing that Lazarus did. 
It's not Lazarus' views on whether or not he should be married or whether or not he should abstain from certain views. Or It's not Lazarus and baptism. It's not Lazarus' perspective on this, that, or the other. It's the fact that God made him alive and gave him the faith. And then his faith, because he can now see Jesus for who he truly is, he puts his faith in Christ. And through that faith that God gave him through no merit of his own, God makes him and us who have been made alive right with him. Now I know, thank you for the amens, I know most of you know that. But some of you don't. Maybe some of you grew up in a sort of church culture where you had to act a certain way or do a certain thing or clean yourself up to a certain point whereby then God would be pleased with you and can bring you into his family. And when we let that subconscious false teaching infiltrate our understanding of the gospel, we lose the gospel. And it is of the same breed as this air in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. It is the teaching of demons. Anything that we add to Christ alone, and the faith that is even a sovereign gift of God, alone by what makes us right with God, then we lose the gospel completely. But here's the challenge. Okay, here's what I want us to see. That does not mean that because we're saved by faith alone and not our works, and even the faith that we have is what God has given us, that we can now say, okay, it's nothing I do. Christ saved me. Now I can do whatever I want. Do you see the balance there? Faith doesn't save you, but then after you've been made alive, then, I'm sorry, works don't save you. Faith alone does, that even God gave you, but after you have been made alive, now how you live and engage with this created wor- world, your works do, are important. This is how the reformers said it in the 1500s. They said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is not alone. Meaning true saving faith is going to be accompanied by a heart that now wants to obey God and pursue righteousness. Do you see the, do you see the balance there? So if we, have, if we bring faith with, I mean if we bring works with us to the cross as somehow commending us to God, we lose the gospel. But after the cross, if we don't then pursue good works and a wise understanding of the world, then we give evidence that we don't truly understand the cross. And that's the concern, that's the balance that we have to see here. So faith in Christ alone is what makes us right with God. Two, now this is the section where I fill up my email inbox. We, too, are prone to a veiled legalism. Because you're like, oh, Brad, this is, a, this is a wonderful theological lesson. Thank you very much for your history lesson, but none of us have ever struggled with marriage or stake. Well, neither have I. But we too are prone to our own sort of veiled legalism. A kind of, if you do this or don't do this, then you are somehow more spiritual. And often, if not always, it is the taking of a good thing and making it the ultimate expression of what it means to live the Christian life. 
I think that Christians in our little stream tend to make a veiled legalistic sort of argument or idol out of various parenting techniques. Homeschooling, private schooling, this, that, or the other, or having your kid involved in a million things, or not having your kid involved in a million things. Everybody has their opinions on what is a a sort of more spiritual approach. Particular dietary convictions. You know? I mean, should you eat this or that or paleo or gluten-free or whatever? And all those things may be wonderful. And by the way, my email is robert at insidecrosspoint.com. Can I, can I wade into the mommy wars a little bit? I think one of the hardest demographics to be in Christian America is a young mother. I mean, I, I, God forbid the young woman whose baby isn't sleeping through the night at three weeks and eating mashed up kale through a little thing. You know, God, poor girl. I mean, it's just, what kind of mother are you that your child doesn't have Beethoven's Fifth Symphony memorized by the time they're in grade school? But now it's even like, there's even like these little spiritual wars about just even how you go through birth. Natural or epidural or... And I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. I just think there needs to be a lot of Grace. Now, I'm not going to make all these things out here. What, what, I mean, they're, they're, we are prone, I am prone, to making a particular theological perspective a kind of veiled legalism. I mean, if you come into my office, I have pictures of old dead guys that represent a, pers- a, a, a particular theological perspective that I think is true. And they stare at me while I'm studying the Bible. And their names are Martin Luther and John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon. You're like, whoa, whoa, where's where's Chuck? (laughs) But you can take even your particular theological perspective and you can make it a kind of veiled legalism. The truly spiritual will read these guys. The truly spiritual will have these books on their shelf. The truly spiritual will operate and believe in the continuation of these spiritual gifts. The effective church in our culture is going to play this type of music and it's going to have this type of feel and ethos when they gather. And do you see when we start to subconsciously rely on all of those things which may be good things. When we rely on them, we too produce a kind of veiled legalism that teaches the world, yes, Jesus, but you have to do Jesus with this kind of paint color, with this sort of veneer on the barn. And if you don't have that sort of cool veneer or whatever it is, whether it's this type of birth story, whether it's that type of diet, whether it's this type of workout, whether it's that type of music, whether it's this particular theological perspective, if you don't have that, 
you're not truly walking in the fullness of what God has for you. And friends, when we believe that, we lose the gospel. And it confuses an onlooking world because guess what? Your average cat out there is just trying to get by. And when we complicate Christianity, it causes people to depart from the faith. Because there's so many little layers of things that we got to add on in order to truly be in the in crowd. And Paul stands on this air and he pitches a fit. And he says, no, don't lose the gospel. So what's the answer to this? Our final truth, and we conclude with this, is that we need gospel-motivated discernment. So verses 4 and 5, he says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So Paul says that, the, I think in this, he's saying that the gospel-motivated Christian is going to look at the world around them and he or she is going to see that nothing that God has created needs to be rejected. It's, it's creation is not inherently evil, but we need to interact with it in a way that makes not even our freedom, but the cause of the gospel as our primary motivation. So as a kind of case study, I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul teaches on this idea to another church that was also dealing with uh, confusion about what they could eat. So 1 Corinthians 8. Let's just read through this short chapter, and then we'll be done. Paul says, now, the situation here in 1 Corinthians 8 is that in Corinth, another church that Paul planted, there were these little butcher shops that um, would, would uh, have meat, that would sell meat that was first sort of dedicated or offered to false gods or idols. And the situation going on in the church in Corinth is, is that some Christians um, were, kind of had a strong conscience. They realized that there was no such thing as idols. And so like, you know, the butcher can do whatever he wants with his meat, but I'm fine with eating the meat because I know that there's no such thing as an idol or some false temple god. So who cares what they offered it to? I'm hungry. So they're going to eat. But there were some maybe younger, newer Christians who were like kind of confused. Like, wait a minute, how can you, how can you eat this food? meat that's been offered to idols that's somehow polluted or tainted. And so there's a dispute, there's confusion amongst Christians about how they should interact with this particular kind of voodoo meat, so, so to speak. And what does Paul say? Now concerning food offered to idols, 1 Corinthians 8, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God... He is known by God. Therefore, verse 4, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods or many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so he's saying there in summary, Listen, we know that there's really no such thing as other gods that these 
uh, th- th- this food could be offered to. And so we realize that it's just false and we don't need to be burdened by that. But he goes on, verse 7, however, not all possess this understanding, or we might interpret that as this level of mature understanding in the faith. Not all of us possess this knowledge, but some through former associations with idols, meaning people that were mixed up in that pagan idolatry, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. So he's kind of saying there's, there's two different mindsets. Even within the church that might come to this, there's people that were kind of messed up in that old way of life and this may be something that hinders them. And you, you weren't messed up into that, and you realize there's nothing to it. You're free to eat this food, but it might hinder them. Food, verse 8, will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. (laughs) What is he saying there? He's saying that you're not made right with God by anything you do or don't do, but by the work of Christ. But take care, verse 9, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, verse 11 is so key, and so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So what is Paul commending here? He is commending a gospel-motivated discernment in 1 Corinthians 8 that I think we need to work in with verses 4 and 5 from 1 Timothy because we could look at verses 4 and 5 and say, you know what, forget what anybody says. I can do whatever I want. God created it good, so I'm going to do it and I'm not going to be hamstrung by this veiled legalism of these super spiritual Christians who really aren't probably Christians at all. And Paul says, yes, but in 1 Corinthians 8, when we read this, what should lead the Christian is not their freedom to do whatever they want, but the motivations of the gospel itself. Because remember the point that Paul is making all through 1 Timothy, that we exist as a church to lift up the beautiful knowledge of Christ to an onlooking world so that people might, through our witness together, come to faith in Jesus. So we had this big discussion about all sorts of cultural issues in staff meeting. And um, one particular pastor uh, asked, what are we going to do when marijuana gets legalized? And it's not legalized yet in Georgia, but, I mean, someday it will be. Or you could throw a whole host of other issues in there. I think whatever God created is good. Does that mean then that a Christian should be free to partake in these things? I would say no. Because there's a greater law at work here that it could potentially be a stumbling block. You can make a whole host of other arguments against it, but it could potentially be a stumbling block to people who would be confused about what it means to follow Jesus. 
And do you see that we can apply that to virtually everything in our lives? Do you see the underlying motivation here is not us and our freedom, not us, but the cause of Christ to an onlooking world. So what's at stake, church, as we gather and as we live and as we interact with the created world? It's the beauty of the risen Christ. It's the beauty of the one who died so that because of his death and resurrection, we might be made right with a holy God. And the way we live together and the way we discern our culture around us becomes either a clear or a cloudy display of that very message. May God give us wisdom as we interact with these things in our world. Let's pray. Father, the issues are so numerable and the situations are so um, great that we can't consider them all. Lord, we often want to rely on lists. Don't do this. Do this. And certainly your scripture commands us to live in certain ways and gives us imperatives to, to pursue holiness. And of course we need, to, we need to hear those things and exhort one another unto holiness. But Lord, our danger I think is so often that we confuse your commands after salvation to being the things that qualify us before salvation. And nothing could be further from the truth. May we be so clear on the gospel that we resist this type of veiled legalism. May we settle in our hearts the way that you would call us to live in a broken world. And may that expression take many forms. Maybe it's to pursue a particular lifestyle or a theological perspective or a spiritual gift. But guard our hearts from attaching any super spirituality to that lest we confuse and obscure the gospel to an onlooking world. May we be fierce about the mereness of grace. May we be ferocious about the freedom of the gospel and the power of the gospel to save, and not because of anything we do, but because of what you have done in your Son. And when we see that clearly, may we get up from the foot of the cross and may we interact with this created world in a discerning and wise way that puts not our freedom to enjoy the created world above all things, but puts what would be most helpful for the display of the glory of God to an onlooking world. Lord, make us that wise type of, of church that does this well and has grace for one another when we don't do it well. And our only hope for this, Lord, 
is your Holy Spirit that gives us this wisdom. So as we come to the table, may you renew in our minds the aloneness of the grace of God, that it alone is what makes us right with you. And may we get up from this table wise, discerning, free, to live lives that display the gospel. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen.